Chapter nine of the Memoirs of Chateaubriand, seventeen sixty eight to eighteen hundred. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Nicole Lee, Memoirs of Chateaubriand, seventeen sixty eight to eighteen hundred, by Francois Rene de Chateaubriand. Chapter nine. Dieppe, October eighteen twelve. Vacations at Combourg. Life at a chateau in a province feudal manners inhabitants of combourg i used to pass my vacations at combourg life in a chateau in the environs of paris can afford no idea of that in a chateau in a distant province the domains of combourg were nothing more than some open heaths a few mills and a couple of forests bourgouet and tarnoyen in a country where wood was almost valueless combourg however was rich in feudal privileges these were of diverse sorts some determined certain ground rents for certain concessions or decreed the usages which originated under the ancient political state of things the rest appear to have arisen from games or pastimes my father had revived some of the latter privileges for the purpose of avoiding prescription when all the family were assembled we took part in these gothic amusements the three principal of which were the saute de poissonnier la quintin and a fair called langevine the peasants in their wooden shoes men of a france which no longer exists looked on as spectators upon the games of a france which no longer exist there were prizes for the conqueror and fines for the vanquished la quintin kept up the tradition of the tourneys and undoubtedly had reference to the ancient military service of the fiefs it is extremely well described in ducange voce quintana the fines were obliged to be paid in ancient copper coins to the value of two moutons d'or à la couronne de vingt-cinq sols parisis each the fair called Langevine was annually held in the meadow with the pond on the fourth of september the anniversary of my birth the vassals were obliged to take arms and come to the chateau to hoist their lord's banner from thence they repaired to the fair to keep order and to enforce the payment of a mulct due to the lords of combourg for every head of cattle a species of regal law at these times my father kept open table and dancing was continued for three days the gentry in the grand hall to the scraping of a violin and the peasantry on the lawn to the squeaking of a bagpipe singing huzzaing and firing arquebuses were the order of the day these noises were mingled with the lowing of the cattle at the fair the buzz of the crowd that moved backwards and forwards in the gardens and woods thus once in the year at any rate something like joy was seen at combourg hence i was so singularly placed in life as to have been present at the la quintin and at the proclamation of the rights of man to have seen the burgher militia of a village of bretagne and the national guard of france the banners of the lords of combourg and the standard of the revolution i am as it were the last witness of these feudal manners the visitors who were received at the chateau were composed of the inhabitants of the borough and the noblesse of the district these good people were my first friends our vanity assigns too much importance to the part which we play in the world the burgher of paris laughs at the burgher of a little town the court noble scorns the noble of a province the man of renown disdains the man who is without fame forgetting that time will do equal justice to their pretensions and that all are equally ridiculous or indifferent in the eyes of the generation which succeeds them the chief inhabitant of the place was a monsieur potelet an old captain of an east indiaman who repeated over and over again some long and wondrous tales of pondicherry as he was relating them with his elbows resting upon the table my father always seemed inclined to throw his plate in the face of the prolix narrator the next personage was a great tobacco merchant m launay de la billardiere the father of a family which like that of jacob consisted of twelve children 
nine daughters and three sons, the youngest of whom, David, was my playfellow. This good man resolved to be a noble in 1789. He chose his time well. In this house there was much forced joy and heavy debt. The Seneschal, Gebert, the fiscal procurator, Petit, the receiver, Corvessier, and the chaplain, the Abbe Chamel, constituted the society of Combourg. Not even at Athens have I met more celebrated personages. Monsieur de Petitbois, Monsieur de Chateau d'Assy, Monsieur de Tanteniac, and one or two other gentlemen used to come on Sundays to hear mass at the parish church, and afterwards to dine with the lord of the manor. We were very intimate with the family of Chemodan, which consisted of the husband and his extremely pretty wife, a natural sister, and several children. They lived at a farm whose only indication of nobility was a pigeon-house. The Tremodans are still living. Wiser and happier than I, they have not lost sight of the towers of the castle, which I quitted thirty years since. They do now what they did when I used to go and eat brown bread at their table. They have not left the port, which I shall never more enter. Perhaps they may be speaking of me at the very moment that I am writing this page. I reproach myself for drawing their name from that obscurity which is their safeguard. They doubted for a long time whether the man of whom they had heard so much was the petit chevalier, the rector or curate of Combourg, also the abbe Sévin, the same whom I used to hear holding forth every Sunday, manifested the like credulity, and could not persuade himself that the polisson, the companion of peasant boys, could be the defender of religion. In the end, however, he believed it, and even quoted me in his sermons, after having dandled me upon his knee. These worthy people who so naturally present themselves to my mind, who saw me such as I was in my infancy and youth, would they know me now, after all the changes which time has made? I should be obliged to tell them my name before they would press me in their arms. I bring misfortune to my friends. A gamekeeper called Roe, who was attached to me, was killed by a poacher. This murder made an extraordinary impression on me. How strange a mystery is the sacrifice of human life! Why is it that it is the greatest crime and the greatest glory to shed the blood of man? My imagination pictures to me my faithful Roe, holding his intestines in his hands, and dragging himself along to a little cottage where he died. I conceived the idea of vengeance, and resolved to punish the assassin. In this respect I am singularly constituted. At first I scarcely feel an offence, but it fastens itself upon my memory. The remembrance of it, instead of decreasing, augments with time. It sleeps in my heart for months, for years perhaps, but it suddenly reawakens at some trivial circumstances with renewed force, and my wound bleeds more severely than when it was first inflicted. But if I do not forgive my enemies, at all events I never harm them. I am rancorous, but not vindictive. If I have the power to revenge myself, I lose the desire. I should not be dangerous except in misfortune. Those who thought to make me succumb by depressing me deceive themselves. Adversity is for me what the earth was for Antea. I regather strength in the bosom of my mother. If happiness had ever taken me from her arms, it would have stifled me. End of chapter 9